tonight. We have been doing a ritual every week in this sermon series, and we're continuing today. God made four promises to Abraham, a name, a land, a son, and a blessing. Okay, if you're here for the first time, sorry about that, but we're doing it again next week, okay? Uh, Abraham's story is in the first book of the Bible, and so far we've covered Genesis chapters 11 through 15 and chapter 19 of that book, and today we've read from two chapters, chapters 16 and 21. And so far we've seen a lot of focus on the promise of a son. Who will be this son through whom Abraham will become a great nation? But today we're going to focus on the promise of a blessing. Remember, Back in Genesis chapter 12, God said four different things about the blessing that he promised. Abraham, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And today, we're going to talk about what that means. But if you haven't been here for the past month or so, here's kind of the build-up to chapter 16. In chapter 12, God said to a 75-year-old man and a 65-year-old wife, y'all are going to become a great nation. And they didn't even have one son. So you can imagine their confusion. How can we, just this infertile couple, and we're way past childbearing age, to ever become a great nation? So Abram probably thought, well, it's going to be my nephew Lot, so I can kind of adopt him as my son, I'll give my inheritance to him, and through him we can build this great nation. And God says, no, Lot is not going to be uh, the heir to this covenant. And so in chapter 15, God says, okay, well, what about my servant, Eliezer of Damascus? And God says again, no, in chapter 15, this son is going to come from your body, your own flesh and blood. But in, at the beginning of chapter 16, Sarai, his wife, is still not pregnant. From Genesis chapter 12 to chapter 16, 10 years have passed. Imagine waiting each and every year, and Sarah is still not pregnant. So, she comes up with a plan. She wants to keep God's promise intact, but she kind of wants to speed up the arrival of the promise. She believes that they should use a surrogate mother. And that's when she looks at her Egyptian slave named Hagar. And she has a plan. We're going to put this plan on the screen. Perhaps I, that is Sarai, can build a family through her. Now for us, 4,000 years later, this story is horrifying. A female slave with no choice in the matter is forced to carry a son who will be perceived as building another woman's family. It's not going to even count as her own son. But at that time, this culture would not have batted an eye. This is what many families did. Many masters and mistresses did. And as much as we want to criticize Sarah for this plan, you've got to imagine it from her perspective for at least a minute. Right? She is in her 70s. Her husband is in her 80s. She does not think that this is really going to happen between them. So she says, well, God only said it was going to come through Abraham, this son. So if we just use Hagar, then, then God's plan is going to come to pass. It's a very understandable plan on paper. The only problem is she does not see all of the victims of her plan ahead of time. But haven't all Christians had this mindset at some point, right? We think we have a good grasp of what God wants. 
And we think we have a great plan that can fit into God's will. And then the plan just explodes. It hurts ourselves and it hurts others because we give so little attention to the consequences of our actions. Some of the biggest messes we make come from our incredible lack of foresight. We just don't see how our plans will ruin other people's lives or our own. So this morning we're going to focus on the two characters that Sarai does not see. We're going to look at the impacts of her blindness and we're going to see that God is different than Sarai. This is Genesis chapter 16 starting in verse 2. Abram does not put up the tiniest bit of argument with this plan. He agrees to what Sarai says. So after living in Canaan for 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband. Let's read those four words. I want you to notice them. To be his wife. So Abram slept with Hagar, and she conceived. I'm sure no one here is shocked by her response. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And Sarah says to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. No one in this room has ever blamed their spouse for their own plan. This is a unique thing to cultures very distant from us. It's not surprising that Hagar is upset about this, but I think we're given a clue that Sarah's original plan is not happening, right? She wanted Abraham to use Hagar as a concubine, but guess what? She's now being treated like a wife, like a rival, like competition. And Sarah is not happy with that competition. And you might be thinking, well, Sarah, you did this to yourself, but she's just playing the blame game. I put my slave in your arms, Abraham, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abram, in the most supreme act of passivity, washes his hands of the whole situation. Your slave is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. And then Sarai mistreats Hagar and abuses her, and Hagar has to flee. Now, pretend for a second you're an ancient Jew living in the Promised Land. And you read this story about an Egyptian slave being mistreated by your ancestors. And she's mistreated so badly that she has to flee that abuse and go out into the wilderness. Would that remind you of a story of your people being enslaved in Egypt? Being so mistreated that they have to flee out into the wilderness, into the desert? If you were an ancient Jew reading this story, you'd probably take Hagar's side. You'd probably think God was on Hagar's side. And we actually find out in the next verse that is exactly what happens. God sends an angel in verse 7 who found Hagar near a spring in the desert beside the road to Shur. Shur is northwest of Egypt. She's headed home. And y'all, angels are so annoying. They always ask questions they know the answers to. Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I know what you're thinking. This angel is telling a pregnant Egyptian slave to go back and submit to an abusive master. That seems so evil. But I want us to keep in mind God's original blessing that he promised to Abraham. He said, I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless all people, including the people you mistreat, through you. So he extends this promise of blessing to Hagar. I will increase your descendants so that they too 
will be so numerous to count. You are now pregnant and you will give birth. Imagine how important that promise is to this woman. You will not have a miscarriage. You will successfully go through all nine months and you will have this son. And he is given a divinely inspired name, Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your mercy. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, if you aren't really impressed with those promises, we're going to put a screen, a, a, a slide up on the screen to show us the promises that God makes to Abraham's family and the promise that God makes to Hagar's family. Look at how similar they are. Abraham, I will increase your descendants. I'm going to give you a son with a divinely inspired name. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And guess what? One day that's going to turn into a nation of 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. Hagar is promised increased descendants. Her son is given a divinely inspired name. In chapter 17, God says, I will bless Ishmael. I will make him a great nation. And from him will come 12 rulers. God makes this almost identical promises to Hagar's family. The only difference is that the covenant will go through Isaac alone. And Hagar's response shows how joyful she is. She is the first person in the book of Genesis to give God a name. She says, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. This is amazing. This unseen, ignored, mistreated slave is seen by the Lord. And y'all, I would love to end the story here. Genesis chapter 16 ends so well. It's perfect for a preacher, but the story keeps going. Now, if you feel lost in the timeline, we're skipping down to Genesis chapter 21. So I want to give you some, some markers for you to know where we are in the story, okay? We're, we're fast forwarding from Genesis chapter 16 to 21, okay? When God originally made his promise to Abraham, he was 75 years old. 11 years later, Ishmael is born. 14 years after that, spoiler alert, the promised son Isaac is born. And at age two or three, Isaac is weaned. This has been a 28-year journey for Abraham from chapter 12 to chapter 21. Okay. Once Isaac is born, you can imagine everybody's a little on edge, right? Because now we have two sons of Abraham. Y'all, Hagar and Ishmael went back to live with Abram and Sarai that entire time. Ishmael's probably 17 years old at this point. Imagine the Dr. Phil episode, right? Imagine a couch with Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Abraham and Isaac. That would be dramatic. That would be great TV. There would be a lot of dysfunction in that family, and there is. It shouldn't surprise us that there might be some conflicted feelings. Because Abraham, he comes to love Ishmael. He asks God to bless Ishmael. Abraham circumcises Ishmael just like every other boy born in the tribe. And Abraham loves Isaac, his son through his wife. And so he throws this feast for Isaac. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to imagine why that party might get a little bit awkward. Right? Ishmael is in the middle of this feast celebrating his half-brother. And apparently we read in Genesis 29, verse, Genesis 21, verse 9, Sarah saw 
that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. That Hebrew word is Isaacing. He's laughing at Isaac. Now, we'll never know what he said. We'll never know exactly what we did. But we know this laughter is not joyful. It's jeering. He's not celebrating Isaac. He is sneering at him. And he might be saying something like this. This little toddler is no rival to me. So Sarah says to her husband, she reaches for a very old solution. Get rid of that slave woman and her son, for he will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. Now, to his credit, Abraham does not immediately go with this plan. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son, Ishmael. But God says, don't be distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to what Sarah tells you because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave, that is Ishmael, into a nation also because he is your offspring. And so we read this tragic story. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food, some water, gave them to Hagar. She wanders out in the desert of Beersheba. She's exactly where she was 17 years earlier because of Sarah, who doesn't see her. When the water and the skin was gone, she puts the boy under one of the bushes. Man, it's really hard to read this verse in front of people. She went away and she thought, I can't watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. Remember that Ishmael's name means he hears. And this mother and son, they think they're all alone, that no one can hear them, that they're banished again out into the wilderness. They're uh, ignored and unheard and unseen. And then this happens in verse 17. God heard. He heard the boy crying. And the angel of God calls to her and says, What's the matter, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then Hagar, the one who calls God, he is the one who sees me. She is enabled to see a well of water. She fills the skin with water, gives the boy a drink, and God is with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert, his mother got him a wife from Egypt. What is God up to in this tragedy? God allows Sarah to mistreat her slave, and Abraham just washes his hands of the situation. And then God allows Sarah to do this again to this slave and her teenager. I don't know why. All we know from this story is that God sees the unseen, and he hears the ignored, he provides for the thirsty, and he shelters the abandoned. And if those four things are true, then this story helps us understand what is meant by God's promise of blessing. Right? Remember, all the way back in chapter 12, God says, I will bless all the peoples of the earth through you, even if you don't want to bless them. Right? Abraham and Sarah don't really make it clear that they want to be a blessing to Hagar, do they? 
They make her life miserable, but God says, no, 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 my promise is I will bless the world through you, whether you like it or not. This story of Hagar makes me think of the first sermon that Jesus ever preached in Nazareth. This happens 2,000 years after Hagar and Ishmael are dead and gone. Jesus is in his hometown. He's preaching, and you'd think that the place would be so supportive of him. And he reads directly from the Bible. He reads these two stories about how God one time sent his prophets to people outside of the covenant, people who were not Jews. And what is the reaction of all the people in the synagogue? All the people there were furious when they heard this. Y'all, we're happy when God blesses us. And we're happy when God blesses the people that we want him to bless. But we're not so happy when he blesses our enemies. We're not so happy when he blesses our enemies through us. It's like in the book of Acts. I don't know if y'all remember this story. Saul has had this conversion experience on the road to Damascus. He's been blinded, and God calls out to Ananias, this Christian living in Damascus, and he says, I want you to go to the house, ask for this Pharisee Saul to place your hands on him to restore his sight. I love Ananias' reaction. Lord, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, there's a lot of reports about this guy, and I don't know if you've done all your research, because he's done a lot of harm to your saints in Jerusalem. Jesus, he's a bad guy. He's a villain. He's dangerous. He's an enemy. And you're asking me to bless an enemy. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's exactly right. I want to bless your enemy through you. God has been blessing people we don't want to bless. And he wants to use us to bless them. God promises at one point that Ishmael will experience hostility. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. He's always going to be fighting with people around him. And that's a fact we can't ignore. Later on in the book of Genesis, we actually see that promise fulfilled. The Ishmaelites, Ishmael's descendants, they are the ones who buy Joseph as a slave. Can you believe that? Generations later... An Israelite male slave is mistreated by an Egyptian woman, Potiphar's wife. How the tables have turned all those generations later. Ishmael's descendants do live in hostility with those around them. But y'all, there is this one glimpse of peace that I want to point out to you. Where Isaac and Ishmael and their family, they put all the animosity aside for one moment in Genesis chapter 25. i got to show you this. It's right when Abraham dies. In chapter 25, in verse 8, we read this. Abraham breathed his last. He died at a good old age. An old man, full of years, and was gathered to his people. Who was there? His sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him together. We have this moment, this very brief moment, where there is peace. Between the son, the, the, the son of covenant, the son of promise, Isaac, and the son outside of the covenant, Ishmael. And I just wonder, what if this moment foreshadows a time when both the family of Abraham and those outside of the family of Abraham would come together and unite? <coughs> that enemy, the Pharisee, Apostle Paul, once wrote this in the letter to the Ephesians. He says, Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of what? Hostility. 
Go to the next verse. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Yes, God did promise that there would be hostility between the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac. But what if in Jesus, the sons of Ishmael and the sons of Isaac can come together and have peace? That would fulfill the promise that God made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let's pray. Father, it is so difficult to hear this story of Hagar and Ishmael being mistreated. And we see such intentional efforts. Such intentional efforts to curse them and hurt them and abandon them. A refusal to see them. And yet you step in and you bless Hagar and you bless Ishmael. And you continue to this day to bless people we don't want you to bless. You bless our enemies. You bless the people who persecute us. You choose whoever you want to bless. Father, help us to love our enemies, to be willing instruments by which you could bless the world. Father, we pray. We pray that in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility would come down. We pray that that animosity that you predicted so long ago would, in Christ, come to an end. That all those at war with one another, all those hateful of one another, would know that the dividing wall of hostility has come down because of Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.